This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Tonight we're off to the Energy Productivity Summit in Sydney. I was shocked to learn that some 90% of the energy we produce in Australia is wasted. It's like the food that we buy and then throw out without ever composting it. So lots of people are putting their minds to using energy more efficiently. There's more to it than running around the house turning off the lights, and that's why they're calling it energy productivity now. As Jan Jutsen, the chairman of the Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity, says, what's the point of spending billions of taxpayer dollars to add new supply when most of what is produced now is wasted? So we're going to find out from our guests if we can fend off the energy crisis without Malcolm Turnbull's big new snowy scheme or Jay Wetherill's emergency gas plant. We have international guests to report on how it's being done overseas and Australian innovators to let us know what we can do here. Our first guest is from France. Monsieur Benoît Lebeau is a civil engineer and is the director of the International Partnership for Energy Efficiency. He's been a leader of policies for climate change and sustainable energy in developing countries. So welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show, Monsieur Lebeau. Good morning, <laughs> So how is climate change making it imperative that we get more out of the energy we do produce? First of all, climate change is a reality that we have to face collectively. And climate change... Um, is generated by the greenhouse gas coming from what we burn or by the forests we cut and uh, also a series of other gases. So uh, climate change is happening faster uh, compared to what we initially planned and we have now an imperative to reduce the amount of greenhouse gas that we emit. For that, we need to change two sectors the agriculture, stop deforestation and plant more trees and on the energy sector we have to find new ways of maintaining our development but with a different consumption of energy, consuming less of those energy that emits gas emissions and more of the energy that are clean but to get to the energy transition that we need to organize we have to fully understand why we consume energy. We consume energy to receive some services. Heat, cold, light, communication, mobility, 
this is the energy services that we need in our daily life. To supply those services, we consume and we burn energy. By better understanding how much we need in terms of services, we can adjust the right level of energy. So far, we have just consumed energy as we develop with no specific consideration of the impact, typically the environmental impact. Mm. But now we have uh, a challenge of uh, addressing uh, this climate change, but also air pollution and also access to energy in some part of the world. So we have to change the way we think energy, the way we use energy. And the very first step is to better consume energy, to reduce the energy that we need for each level of services. This is what we call energy efficiency or energy productivity. Increase the value of the services that we receive for each unit of energy that we consume. And the second part is to move for towards clean energy solutions. Yes, well, I think there's a sort of image problem with energy efficiency. You know, films and television always show more wind turbines and more solar plants as the solution to climate change. And the polluting is contrasted with the polluting chimneys of the present day. You know, we always see those Im- images on television. And I think there must be something missing in the conventional approach to low carbon economy, an image that we don't yet see. So could you paint us an image of what energy efficiency and productivity really look like you may have heard about solar impulse this wonderful plane that flew around the world only with the energy from the sun to develop the plane it took 10 minutes for the engineers to design the surface of solar pv to produce electricity from light it took the same engineers 12 years to develop every single detail to improve the energy consumption of the plane, make it lighter, mm. making the right management, making sure that the battery storage is in line with what can be produced and what's needed when there is no more sun. And the image of the sun, uh, of the of solar impulse, is that it's driven by solar. But what makes this plane took off? is energy efficiency, is how smart every single use of energy was implemented. So, yes, indeed, it's hard to believe, but energy, uh, the clean energy transition comprises both renewable energy, the sun, the hydro, the geothermal, the biomass, and the wind, but above all, it's in the way we consume, that we use every unit of energy that counts. And typically, um, the solar impulse impose is an illustration of this paradigm shift that we are facing now in the world. We have to think the evolution of the world the same way the designer of solar impulse um, made it a reality. Mm. So thinking the overall system and not only how are we going, uh, we are going to produce energy, but what the use of the energy and what the optimal use of energy in every part of the system. Mm. Well, I think, um, you know, you have a lot of experience internationally and I think you've said you see encouraging signs of collaboration at the international level to spread out 
these smart systems and you know share the knowledge and indeed I can report that when I was recently in Malaysia I attended an energy efficiency conference in Malacca and they were speeding ahead with the help of a Danish organisation and they were getting all energy efficiencies in their hospitals and public buildings and they were measuring it in how many ringgits saved you know they were very impressed by what they'd achieved so far and they were very prepared to take it to scale but they said we need help we do need international help so can you give us some examples of what you see in this world of collaboration first of all all countries have to transform the way they uh, access and use energy Uh, with the Paris Agreement um, developed at COP21 every country has now to move its own economy on a low carbon path and within that uh, energy efficiency and enhanced energy productivity is part of the solution. But energy efficiency has a longer history in the OECD world, in the rich economies. This is where we have developed the good practices, the technology that consumes less and less energy for given services. So uh, over the past 30 years in North America, in Europe, in Australia, in Japan, yes, we have learned how to develop the technique and the policy that goes with them mm. to make sure that the best solutions are implemented. Now we need to bring that to the rest of the world, the world of those emerging economies, of the least developed countries that will develop big, uh, with the help of energy, but we want them to develop in the cleanest way. Interestingly, there is now a uh, growing international dialogue on how the country can develop using the best practices. So um, the United Nations has a series of programs within the context of climate change, but also uh, within the uh, sustainable development goals that were set two years ago by the UN Assembly, targeting a series of 17 goals for 2030. One of the goals is clean energy, access to clean energy. So we have the clean energy on the international agenda of the UN, at the G20, in every regional cooperation, there is now a dimension because energy is a very important trade issue. Yeah. So we are trying to uh, make sure that uh, the dialogue is set between different governments and um, we are doing our best to make sure that we collect information of what are the good practices, what are the good technology, and organize a transfer of know-how and technology and the implementation of the best practice everywhere in the world. This is, by the way, one of the uh, challenges following the COP21, making sure that we transfer the right technology from the rich world to the developing countries. Yes, well, I saw that example of the Danish in Malacca, but uh, what would countries like poorer countries who need this help, where do they go to? What's the organization that they would appeal to? Typically, uh, you know, there are maybe a series of 10 different UN agencies that are working directly or indirectly on clean energy solutions. So the United Nations Development Program, the United Nations Environmental Program, the UNIDO, that's international um, um, industrial development, the FAO, and you have many UN bodies that um, are in position to provide, to channel the international support, the technical policy and financial support that the country needs. Mm. 
So let me take a concrete example. Um, the amount of urban population will grow very far, very fast. Yes. In Africa, for instance, urban population will double between 2010 and 2030. In less than 20 years, urban population will double, right? The infrastructure, the buildings, the streets, the uh, transport have to be organized now and built now. It is in the way we will organize uh, this new construction, this new infrastructure that we can have the greatest impact on greenhouse gas emission and lowering the energy bill. So um, the system exists. What is missing sometimes is the connection between typically those dealing with climate change and those in government dealing with implementing the infrastructure, developing the cities, uh, transport policy, industry policy, sometimes the connection is not sufficiently made between what the decision implies in typically building a new construction, setting a new transport system, and climate change mitigation program. So there's a challenge not so much on the way the different organizations are treating the thing with in, in the way we can address the right level of decision maker yes, in that, the country. Yes, that sounds very sensible to me. I'd, I'd like some more examples of, look, how can, you know, what would be a short list, say a, a three-point list of things to improve the energy use? Because it's crazy that 90% is lost, you know, either in tr- transmission or in uh, load dumping. I, I don't even understand how that happens. But meanwhile, if it does happen, uh, again, coming back to Malaysia, they told me that despite the efficiencies they were going to build, they're planning to build 12 new coal-fired power stations and they, you know it's uh, if you could get efficiencies you could prevent some of those new power stations being built I think And what are the key things would you say that cause? The first thing is to consider that we are not going to solve the energy challenge by just thinking providing more supply of energy no. we have absolutely to change the way we think energy and think where do we where is there the demand what will be the demand for energy and the demand will come from industry transport and buildings so it is in the way we design and manage those transport industry and buildings that we can have the big impact on lowering the energy consumption so talk about good practice let's talk about uh, good practices. We have learned in the rich world, in Europe, North America, Australia, Japan, how to produce typically energy efficient lamps. We have moved away from those inefficient lamps that were producing more heat than light. In the field of lighting, for example, with a, a revolution with a light emitting diode, LED, LED. And um, we have learned how to move away from the inefficient lighting technique to adopt the efficient technique. This has to, can be brought now in the emerging country by supporting programs typically where not only we will provide uh, support uh, to the country that need more energy but to provide support for them to recognize that they need to put in place the enabling environment, the policy framework so that they attract the right technology and uh, we have we, 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 we faced 
uh, out inefficient use in the modern uh, in the rich world we have now to bring this technology to the uh, emerging uh, countries so lighting is the most visible uh, end use that we have mm. but um, all the other end use um, air conditioner fridge electric motors uh, tv in the rich world there have to comply, they have to comply with some level of minimum energy performance. Mm. We need to bring this type of minimum performance uh, standard, minimum performance policy uh, in the emerging countries. So for this to happen, we have to uh, provide support to build the human capacity, the institutional capacity. We have to train the specialist. We have to make sure that in every line ministry in charge of buildings, transport industry, there is some people in capacity to mainstream energy efficiency, to mainstream all this technology mm. and to understand what are the policies that they need to implement and then develop the policy and then make sure implementation goes on. There's a whole chain of activity that we need to enhance globally. Yes. This is the essence of the uh, Paris Agreement and in view of the target that we have set maintaining this one below two degrees warming, we have now to make systematic this approach of bringing the good practices. It's not only the technical, the technology, it's also the human dimension, the human capacity. And uh, that's an everyday task. And uh, it's coming, but it takes some time also. Nothing will happen overnight. And... uh, it takes some time to build those capacity, to transform the markets, to develop the good practices, and to just teach and bring the information to the right level at the right people. Thank you. Well, look, thank you so much for inspiring us about the way forward. You've given us a few hints. And uh, just before we go, we have some French listeners. I wonder if you'd like to give a little salutation in French to those people who are listening. Eh bien, c'est un plaisir de participer à cet entretien. La, euh, l'importance de maîtriser les enjeux de l'environnement, du changement climatique et de l'énergie est fondamentale. Et il est encore plus fondamental maintenant de savoir en parler et d'utiliser toutes les langues pour faire passer les bonnes pratiques. Mm-hmm. Donc j'espère avoir participé à cet effort en anglais tout à l'heure et en français maintenant. Thank you very much. So that was Monsieur Benoit Lebeau from the IPEEC, which means the International Cooperation Group on Energy Efficiency. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Mary Ritter is the International Ambassador for Climate Kick, which is the knowledge innovation community. I've heard Mary speak before at a conference in Melbourne, and I like the way that Climate Kick sponsors and brings on a great variety of projects. One of them, I know, is called The Elephant Podcast with broadcaster Kevin Kaners, and I've rebroadcast some of his interviews, and he always pays tribute to the climate kick. So I think sponsoring um, climate media is very good, and I know you do lots of different things as well. So welcome, Mary, to the Beyond Zero radio show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. Oh, I'm glad you, you're happy to be here. Could you tell us what aspects of climate change you are taking on at the moment? You're right. It's a very large subject. Um, in Europe, 
we're focusing on four key areas on urban transitions because so many people live in cities and uh, so much climate change is impacting cities um, but also looking at um, sustainable land use for agriculture and forestry um, looking at sustainable production systems um, looking at a circular economy oh, yes. um, so that waste becomes a raw material mm. and looking also at finance um, and decision metrics if you can't measure the impacts you're having then you really can't um, adjust it I, I'd like to hear a bit more about the circular economy what are some examples of projects in in the circular economy um one particular example of looking at um, a waste product and then using it as a raw material um, is a program that we call Encore, which is using carbon dioxide as a raw material. So we have um, a large company called Covestra involved, but we also have startups. There's one called Econic, um, and they've developed different chemical catalysis methods for using carbon dioxide to, to create plastics, um, basically replacing oil um, and using your waste carbon dioxide instead. So mm. it's a really good way of preventing putting more carbon dioxide into the air uh, and also cutting down on the use of fossil fuel. Well, I know you collaborate a lot with business. You have quite a few um, groups involved that you, you then make available to these startups or projects that are needing a bit of help. But we also hear a lot about business standing in the way, whether it's the fossil fuel companies persuading politicians to subsidise new coal mines, we get this in Australia, or agribusiness preventing farming practices that will enrich the soil and preserve the biodiversity. And I'd like to know, how are you getting business involved in this sort of systemic innovation? Uh, we get business involved really because we've created uh, a large community um, where business is just one part of it. Uh, in fact, in Europe, about 50% of our partners, we have 200 partners, about 50% of those are from business. And half of those are large corporates and the other half are small and, and medium enterprises. Mm. But they're attracted because in addition to having access to those small and medium enterprises that are very often the source of innovations, they also have access within this community of 200 partners um, to our universities and research institutes and also to city and regional governments. So we really bring together all of those sectors and it's, it's a long-term community and essentially partners get to understand and to know each other and when there are challenges, climate challenges, um, they come together um, and really work on demand-led uh, innovation. Mm. Well, we're talking about energy efficiency today, and I'd like to know if you could give us some case studies or projects using energy efficiency or um, that need acceleration, that need a bit of a boost-up. Um, in terms of energy efficiency, we have um, startups um, working on that. We have a range of different um, approaches to energy through through the startup program and just thinking of some examples 
Um, there's one of the most successful ones we had, which came through the German accelerator. It's called Tardo, um, which um, is really a home energy um, management um, system. Um, it's an intelligent, an intelligent climate control uh, for a private household or for small businesses or for shops. And it detects where residents currently are within the building, takes account of the weather, the current weather, the forecast weather, and also the building characteristics. Um, it's fully automatic and it plays a key role in energy efficiency um, for the buildings that are using it. That's been really successful and has raised something like 20, 25 million euros, a mixture of euros and, and, and US dollars. There are others. We have, um, I suppose, well, thinking of the students, we have one student-generated um, startup that we've um, nurtured through the accelerator system called Kula, which is a, a refrigerator that runs um, off hot water that you heat with solar panels um, and doesn't require electricity at all. And it's really very well suited for developing areas that are either um, have no electricity or have poor access to perhaps a not very reliable grid. Um, we have, we have, we have many others that yes. are looking at other things, windows where, which work like solar panels, so you don't just have, have the panels on the roof, so your windows can be generating well. uh, uh, electricity as well. I think that's what listeners want to hear about and what I especially want to hear about is the international reach of this because I think it's wonderful what you're doing and it, it seems to have so many people on side and helping, sharing knowledge and spreading you know, innovation so then people can take it to scale. It's not just a small thing anymore. But what's happening in you know, poorer countries in the developing world where energy efficiency must be vital because energy is so exp expensive and, you know, just um, the cost of importing coal and burning it and then losing oh. half of it is very expensive for countries. So we don't want them to keep that up. We want them to use the renewable energy. But meanwhile, using it efficiently would be a big contribution to climate action. So internationally in poorer countries, what, what projects do you see yes. there? I mean certainly uh, you know, the Climate Kick in Europe is a European organisation but it absolutely understands that it must have global impact and the sort of impact it can have obviously varies with the economic um, position of different countries around the world. So for the developing world we certainly, we're taking two approaches. Some of the innovations that are coming through are highly relevant for the developing world and in fact the Kular um, refrigerator that I've just mentioned is certainly relevant for that. Um, the, so there's a, a sort of individual innovation level um, but then at a, a more integrated level what we're looking at is um, working with existing networks in those countries otherwise looking to see if we can set up networks looking to, to work with the World Bank, for example, um, to work with their um, climate innovation centres that they have in um, some in, in Northern and, and Eastern Africa. Mm. Uh, so we're looking at a, a broad level of how we can have contacts um, across the developing world and then within that specifically looking at um, innovations that are 
appropriate there rather than to the developed world. Yes, all right. Well, thank you very much, Mary. I, I, I love talking to you, and I, when I heard you speak in Melbourne last time, I wished I could have interviewed you then. But thank you. I'm really glad you've made the time for us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. So that was Mary Ritter. She's the international ambassador, so she goes around the world doing this sort of thing for Climate Kick, which is the knowledge innovation community. Thank you very much, Mary. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'd like to welcome uh, Monica Frassoni now to the Bizzetti radio show. Signora Frassoni is from Italy, and she has had a career in the European Parliament. She's the co-president of the European Green Party and she's also president of the European Alliance to Save Energy. The American magazine Foreign Policy listed her in 2010 as one of the top global thinkers. So I'm very honoured to bring her voice to our audience. Welcome, Monica. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Look, um, women always laugh when they're um, <laughs> honoured like that. Men just take it for granted. But anyway, look, we've talked earlier about the nuts and bolts of energy efficiency, but I think you must be more interested in the policies and laws that will accelerate this process. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, because uh, we noticed over the years that nothing comes from the sky or falls from the sky, and uh, above all, not issues concerning energy. In order to have a sustainable energy system, meaning um, less reliant on uh, fossil fuels and more on saving energy and on uh, renewables, you have to um, make uh, consumers, business, and uh, in general society, uh, societies, uh, understand that that is uh, um, good for them uh, and not only good for the climate. So this is exactly uh, what uh, we try to do um, in Europe and, uh, of course, not only Europe, but I will concentrate on that because we, um, we believe that in the moment in which there are regulations, notably at European level, um, that um, can make it more easy, more profitable and more univocal, I mean, going in the same direction, mm. uh, going renewable and going more efficient, um, the system will adapt more quickly. Of course, um, we know that uh, there are uh, increasing level of air quality problems, pollution, for example. In Europe, there are um, hundreds of thousands of people who die earlier because of the quality of the air. Uh, we know that there is a problem with the uh, quality and quantity of resources, and we know that we cannot rely on uh, fossil fuel. But all this is not enough and is not quick enough mm. to make uh, our policies change. That is why we really uh, uh, put par particularly emphasis on, uh, on the regulation, because we observed over the last 10 years that doing so in the energy system was something that also was helping not only consumers but also business to um, find new technologies and new uh, level, new new uh, methodologies of production, which uh, also could help create new jobs or um, reorientate and change uh, very important um, industries, like for example the building industries. Yeah. You cannot go on building forever but uh, you can uh, readapt the houses and the buildings that already exist in order to make them more sustainable. And this creates an enormous amount of jobs. Yeah, so that's a very good example. So I imagine like building codes that insist on insulation and yes, not, not such a heavy use of yes, concrete. Or uh, I think that uh, we are not starting from scratch. Um, the, there are already um, regulations and laws in place. Simply they are not going quick enough. 
um, take into account that uh, we should have a level of uh, uh, energy productivity, for example, of 3%. We are just, every year, we're just one and a half. So we have to double it. And even the regulations that uh, exist at the level of the European Union only achieve about half of our target. So we are a little bit lagging behind. I was interested to see that you're with the European Green Party and I wonder, is that part of the European Parliament? And if so, what leads are the Greens taking uh, in getting energy efficiency? I mean, these are great policies, but there's a political process always. There's an obstruction, there are vested interests and people pulling the other way. So how do you go? Well, I think that uh, in in the European Parliament, the Greens are a relatively small group. Uh, We were the fourth uh, in the previous legislation. Now we are the the number six. Uh, but uh, we are very cohesive and united and very noisy. So uh, we were able to um, influence a lot uh, the discussion on energy, first of all because reality is there and you can be a representative of a vested interest in fossil or nuclear, but uh, people see uh, that climate change is there and that the air is polluting and that nuclear is very expensive. So I think that uh, sometimes facts are your best allied, mm-hmm. allies. But um, it is indeed difficult, but we had Greens uh, writing actually on behalf of the European Parliament uh, a lot of these regulations, be it renewable and energy efficiency. And um, I think uh, that uh, before us we have a very, a very heavy battle in the next years. We are starting just now the updating of the current regulation on everything concerning energy uh, in order to be able for Europe to respect the um, commitments of the agreement of Paris, um, in particular to limit the the, uh, warming of the climate, the raising of temperature to 2 degrees with uh, uh, an objective of getting to 1.5. And um, I think that this adaptation to the um, to the uh, targets of the uh, of, of Paris is certainly not quick enough in our in, in the world, but in Europe uh, also. And so we are facing a very up, uphill uh, battle. But uh, we cannot say that we are starting from scratch. Well, thank you for telling us all that. We we here often quote European countries as being so far ahead, and we see films about the you know the fourth revolution in energy and um, it seems to me you're so far ahead but now I'd like to talk about the developing world who, you know, we want them to leapfrog some of the um, polluting industries that we've um, been using for the last two centuries and after Paris I had the impression that everyone went home to work on their own targets but I wonder if there isn't a need for some sort of international help via a technology transfer, you know, that, uh, and also like an expertise in governance, like this sort of policy transfer too, so that people say, look, this is what we've found with all our research in the wealthy world, like this is how is the best way to do it, and um, so that countries can lower their carbon footprint, even if, you know, in a developing country it looks like it's too expensive, it looks like it's impossible. So, Well, you know, um, nothing is uh, for nothing. So uh, the fact of importing fossil fuels is also very expensive. Um, and uh, if, uh, the fact of uh, exposing your citizens to a very polluted air is also dangerous. The technologies and the funds are there. They have to be transferred or they have to be uh, 
uh, used mm, with a political decision through political will, really, um, because we see uh, that it is not necessary that developing countries go through the same uh, lines, go through the same um, precedent that uh, developed country had to go through, because this would have an impact on uh, the planet, uh, which would be unsustainable. And when I'm talking about an impact on the planet, I'm not talking about mass, I mean, general terms. I'm talking about the quality of the cities and the pressure of the traffic or uh, the level of the, um, of, and, and the way in which uh, we deal and we cope with the scarcity of resources, notably water. So the fact of becoming more efficient in all that, and notably in energy, it is in some cases a life and death uh, issue, notably for the, for the developing countries. So I believe that um, if we have a, 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 an understanding, not an understanding, but a pressure to uh, respect the, um, the targets which are set in Paris, but also the sustainable uh, targets set by the United Nations, I think that we will also have a new uh, economic system with better jobs and a better environment. So I think that it's a win-win situation, which is not yet there, unfortunately, but which needs a lot of pressure also from the public opinion. Yes, well, that's where the media comes in to educate the public, I think, and that's where they are falling down. But just to finish, Monica, would you just like to give us an example of what your European Alliance to Save Energy does, and do you have an international um, outreach? I can see you're participating here in an international conference. Uh, is that is there some other work you're doing in developing countries like that? Well, um, what we do concretely is that we do advocacy. The European Alliance Save Energy is a multi-stakeholder organization, so there are business uh, NGOs and members of parliament. And what we try to do very concretely uh, is to uh, influence and to talk about how the legislation at European level on energy efficiency should do. And this, of course, brings um, awareness raising um, activities and initiatives at national and European level, because, you know, the decision-making at European level is quite complex. Mm. And also a cooperation at global level, notably with the American and the Australian Alliance to Save Energy. So uh, this is uh, what we do very concretely. We do not have an outreach uh, um, at the level of the developing countries, but we do work uh, so as the uh, European Union, for example, earmarks a part of its uh, very interesting and very important development um, assistance to energy issues, and we press very much bodies like the World Bank of the, uh, of the, or the European Bank of Investment towards a more sustainable path, because we see that a lot of this international uh, financial and powerful organization still go on financing big um, infrastructure which are not particularly useful or, or are going counter uh, the priorities that the world sets for itself at the level of the Paris Agreement. So this is a little bit what we try to do. Do you feel positive about the way things are going? Are they? I know they're not going fast enough for you or for me. You know, but um, do you? How do you feel? Well, I am. I am determined to try to have an impact. Um, 
positivism and optimism is a state of mind that uh, <laughs> is probably, you know, less useful than being determined to act. Be determined, yes. All right, thank you very much. So that was Monica Frassoni, who is um, in the Greens Party, European Greens Party, and she's also with the European Alliance to Save Energy. I'm very privileged to have brought you to the air in Australia. So thank you very much for your participation. Thank you very much to you. Bye-bye. Thank Ciao. you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, Monsieur Renal Galis is with a company called Thinkstrom. He's the Vice President for Ecosystems and Marketing, and I think I might be a bit out of my depth here, as he is at the Energy Efficiency Summit to talk about the next wave in the Internet of Things. So welcome, Monsieur Galis. How are you enjoying the summit? Uh, thank you, Vivian. Uh, yeah, very interesting summit, and uh, it's very interesting to see all the important people present at this event and I think it uh, makes it even more exciting that uh, see the, um, that uh, they're, they're all concerned about uh, energy efficiency and energy productivity. Yes. Well, the starting point for me was that I read in the information that 90% of our energy is wasted. Can you explain how that happens? <laughs> the, the, the reason it's wasted is because my guess is not properly monitored. So if it's not properly monitored, then there's no, nobody who really know uh, exactly how much is consumed and uh, all things could do, be done better. And uh, that's where uh, the Internet of Things is interesting. Yes, because, like uh, I know in Australia with our huge distances, a lot is lost in transmission. I think that's one thing, the transmission lines, and we want decentralized power. But mostly the debate in Australia has been about let's build more power, let's get more supply, but your work is much more on using it more intelligently, isn't it? Exactly. I don't think we need more power. I think uh, even if the population increase, uh, we could be way more efficient by better monitoring uh, our energy consumption, uh, being wiser and 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 with that uh, being much more sustainable yeah. from that point of view and um, so that's where the intent of things is interesting well that's now you have to tell us what it is because I'm sure some of the <laughs> listeners will know but I certainly do not know and I've seen some diagrams but I still don't really get yeah, it so yeah. what is it so okay intent of things is really two things about intent of things there's the first one which is about what we call the consumer intent of things the, the Fitbit the, the Apple Watch and uh, so that's not really doing much for sustainability or uh, energy efficiency um, from that point of view so I'm more involved into what we call the industrial uh, internet of things uh, what we call also IIoT and uh, where it gets really interesting is uh, being able to pretty much monitor anything now at a very very low cost so when I say very low cost uh, means um, you could have a, uh, air conditioning on the top of a building and just put a small device that will cost around $20 and will send you information every day telling you the air conditioning is working fine, um, the, the power going to the air conditioning is fine, the, the fan is turning to at the right speed, and uh, nothing's wrong. Or the opposite, uh, something's wrong, and uh, you need to, to do some maintenance quickly, because if you don't do that, the power consumption on your air conditioning is going to increase by 20%, 30%, and the more you wait, and the, the higher the, the power consumption on your air conditioning uh, will be happening. And uh, the revolution with the IoT now is that you can have very small battery-powered devices, very low cost, connected to your air conditioning that's uh, going to send that data to a platform 
to the building manager informing him uh, on time, in near real time, of um, the condition of the equipment. So it could be air conditioning, could be smoke alarm, it could be uh, a fire extinguisher, it could be a, a light sign, uh, just to make sure that everything is working properly and uh, at a very low cost. Right. Well, I believe you Does have it. Make a, sense? Yeah, yeah. I can, I can sort of see that. That there are a lot of things that are remotely controlled, and can you can collect data on them. And I, I would hope that a lot of it would be that you could turn it off. You know, when you don't really need it, like all this air conditioning. A lot of the shops seem to be refrigerated. Practically, they're very, very cold. They don't need to be that cold. They don't need to be on. The, you know, the air conditioning doesn't need to be turned up all the time. Can you turn our things off? I reckon. Well, you, you, yeah, in theory you can, and there's already a solution in place uh, to, to do it. The problem so far has been the cost. Mm. Uh, if you start wiring, uh, for instance, a, a sensor on the air conditioning, and that device needs to connect to 3G, if you do that, the cost is so prohibitive that uh, you won't do it. So that means you won't monitor your equipment, and if you don't monitor it, then uh, you don't know if it's over-consuming uh, and, and that was the issue until now, until really this year. Uh, um, that was clearly not possible. And uh, that's where the, the change is, is very interesting now, is that um, being able to monitor things at one-tenth of the cost of last year. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, look, I believe you have a new technology which has a low battery consumption, and the monitor, for example, on a cold storage system could last for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I would like you to explain some of the applications, other applications of your system. Yeah, so, so the technology is called uh, Sigfox. So it's a, it's, a, it's a network. We're building a national network uh, with that technology. And the, the main advantage of that technology, it's, uh, it's a very, very long range, very low power consuming. So, for instance, if you look at a water meter, a water meter... Uh, needs to work, uh, if it's connected, needs to work on battery because there's no electricity in your water meter. And, uh, and you need a battery that will last 15 years. And so then all of a sudden, with this kind of technology, now you, you have a water meter that can send data every day uh, to the, the utility company saying, this is a water consumption for today. But the main advantage is being able to detect very early on uh, the water leaks. Uh, so that's the kind of application, which are very simple to implement and were just not possible before because it was way too expensive to do. Now, just with a small $20 sensor and the connectivity that will cost a dollar per year, not $10 per month, but a dollar per year, now you can meter uh, wirelessly your, your, uh, your water meter and adding this very interesting information. Yes, well, I, I've, I've read about that Sigfox, and uh, what I read, it said they're rolling out the first Internet of Things network to span 32 countries to listen to billions of objects broadcasting data without network connections. Uh, I'd like you to paint this picture, this international picture now. I, I presume they're 32 rich countries, but it can be rolled out then to developing countries, can't it? Yeah, well, yeah, that was the starting point. But uh, if you look at by the end of this year, there will be 60 countries. And by the end of 2018, uh, they're planning to have 100 countries. So that kind of network, because they are so, I will say, so cheap to implement. Uh, I mean, we're deploying, uh, in New Zealand, we deploy 89% of the network in the space of nine months. Uh, if you compare that to NBN, uh, it's taking 20 years to, to connect everyone. Very quick to implement, very cheap to implement. So it's not just for the rich countries. Uh, it's pretty much for anyone. In fact, the, the poor countries can really take advantage of that network because it's cheap. 
and uh, to connect things so as before was not possible. Just imagine I am, you know, a, a government, a foreign government, and you're pitching this to me. What would you say? How would you pitch it to me? It's going to save me money and it's going to save my carbon emissions by using energy more efficiently. But how? how what's the gamut of things I can use it on? Well, I, I, I will say if you try to do that uh, two years ago, it will have cost you a fortune to a point that uh, you wouldn't find uh, the, the funding to do it. And uh, we're not asking you for any money. The only thing you'll pay is, uh, is an OPEX per connection. So that means the more things you connect, the more things you monitor, and the better uh, you'll be uh, sustainable, and the more it will cost you. But it will only cost you a dollar per year per device. And compared to what a device brings you back in terms of um, sustainability, it's ridiculously slow. Mm. Uh, ridi- ri- ridiculously. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, t- tell me the names of the things. What are the things that are going to be connected? It's, it's you mentioned a few. Uh, yeah, well, you know, you could. I give you some crazy example, uh, like uh, monitoring uh, all your cattle, all your cows, so that you know where they are, uh, but uh, you know when they're pregnant, when they're sick. And so uh, you can't, um, you know, act much faster uh, on the conditions. How can you but know that? Just yeah. a small device which is atta- attached to their to the neck will monitor the temperature, will monitor the GPS location. Huh. And uh, and before again, this solution existed, but cost so much money that nobody implemented them. Mm. Uh, another that would be good be- because you know um, one of the main things they say with um, managing cattle, you know, for the less methane and, and better productivity on the land is to move them around all the time. They think they, think they call it cell grazing. Could you do that with fences? Could you monitor the fences as well and move the fences around with that sort of thing? Uh, potentially, yes, because you could monitor the gate and so decide if the gate is open or closed. And um, and again, that's something that before you wouldn't do because having a, a sensor on the gate with a 3G connection would be yeah. way too expensive to do. Wouldn't make any sense. But now it's so cheap to do that. Why not connecting the gates? And uh, and even we do that, for instance, in in the fridges in uh, in supermarkets. When when a, a, a door fridge is left open, it sends an alert um, to to make sure the the door is closed. So mm. potentially you could do it. It's, it I mean, there's not, nothing new here, except it costs too much money to do before, so it was not done. Yeah, can you and give me some examples now where the big guzzlers of energy are? You know, like in cities, where the big expenditure of you know we want to cut down that. Overuse of energy, waste of energy. Well, where, what sort of systems would you install here using this um, Sigfox? Well, the, the first thing I mean, we see that the biggest uh, uh, energy consumption is uh, in buildings. I mean, uh, lights being left open, uh, door being left open, the air conditioning running all the time. Uh, so there's so many things that could be uh, improved. And again, there are already solutions. So I'm not trying to to say that nothing was done. Now, the only difference is that if you can do it at one-tenth of the cost it cost before, you should be doing it for every building because now that, uh, there is real value in, uh, in monitoring um, uh, everything, hmm. uh, even just monitoring a door being left open and just that alone uh, as value. If it just costs you $10, Ten dollars per year. Uh, I mean, ten dollars for the device and one dollar per year. It'd be silly not to do it uh, because 
and, and so that's why you can put plenty of sensors everywhere now. And before you you could do it. In fact, the new buildings already have those sensors, but everything is wired and everything costs a lot of money uh, to do. Now we just retrofit to any kind of building and uh, immediate savings, uh, either on the on the LEDs or uh, uh, on the air conditioning yeah. or uh, you know. Yeah, so lighting and air conditioning um, and heating maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's yeah. for buildings. Then yeah, buildings. you can implement that for improving uh, What about transport? Traffic. Um, yeah. yeah, traffic exactly. control. How can exactly. you do that? Well, there's a lot of things that could be done uh, at different levels. Um, just imagine if you can monitor any kind of signs, uh, any kind of um, uh, traffic light, uh, then you could you know, improve uh, drastically the... Uh, the the traffic and when sometimes you know you look you're staying at the traffic light and and the, there's traffic increasing and there's no reason that light is still red and when there's no traffic the other way oh I see well, yeah. you could <laughs> you could optimize uh, all that and uh, oh so and I hope so I've not been done in, intelligently and uh, things are improving but the fact that now it costs a very small amount of money to do. Uh, there is real value to do it. Uh, I hope it would work the other way, that if they see an elderly pedestrian coming, they would slow down the light <laughs> and give you more time to cross. <laughs> yeah, that's another example, uh, monitoring uh, Alzheimer's patient. There is not really any uh, energy produ- productivity here or, mm. or energy saving, but it's another uh, interesting case for um, uh, geolocating uh, Alzheimer's patient. Oh, I see. Uh, knowing what they're doing, oh, where yeah. they are. Yeah. Well, I, th- I thought when I started this interview I wouldn't be able to understand it, but I think you've painted a very clear picture and these little sensors that are inexpensive now, uh, it sounds like you are starting to roll them out. Where, where does, is this just one company, this Thinkstra? Is that just one company or, or is this going to be something that's very widely taken up by other companies? Well, uh, I mean, we work with very, very closely with a lot of partners. I mean, if I mention... Uh, IBM, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, or uh, Schneider, uh, NEC. Um, so we're providing the connectivity to uh, to make uh, Internet of Things simpler and cheaper. Yes. But then we work with a lot of uh, partners, a lot of system integrators that take advantage of that technology. It's a bit like uh, we will manage the Wi-Fi technology, and then you have partners who, who build routers and build a complete solution around the Wi-Fi. Yeah. So... Uh, for us, we're just building that network that really facilitates a low-cost uh, Internet of Things to be able to connect the unconnected, yeah. connect anything uh-huh. and everything. <laughs> it sounds exciting. It sounds a bit <laughs> daunting as well, but I, I love that with the cows with the big thing hanging around them and the <laughs> little sensor on the gate. That's terrific. Thank you very Which much. Connecting pallets or shopping trolleys. Yeah. Or oh, I can see you can go wild with it. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you. That was Monsieur Reynold Galis from Thinkstra. Thanks to the Energy Productivity Summit and the guests who appeared tonight. If you'd like to get involved in climate action, check out the Climate for Change website. The latest good news was that Westpac will no longer lend money to the Adani project. To get involved, go to galileeblockade.org. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for a show that takes us back to the farm. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. 
As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.